Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I'm your host, Alexian Taffy. And I know I say this every time, but I am truly excited to be interviewing today's guest because uh, Pei is a beloved of mine and I've known. Um, Pavini for a long time, and I'll put that it's okay to say that, Pavini. But I'm a great. I'm about to interview Dr. Pavini Moray, who is a somatic sex therapist in private practice. Working through a trauma informed, pleasure centric lens, Pavini works with individuals and couples who wish to resolve the past, inhabit their bodies and their pleasure, and learn to speak their desires. Pavini also hosts the podcast Bespoken Bones, Ancestors at the Crossroads of Sex, Magic, and Science. And in September 2019, Pavini will be launching a new podcast called The Well-Pleasured Podcast. And if you have not checked out Bespoken Bones yet, I really invite you to listen. It's a really wonderful podcast. And I'm not just saying that because I've just been interviewed for it either. As a queer trans witch, Pavini walks the glitter path of dancing bones, ridiculous delight, and old magic. You can find out more about Pavini's work at www.emancipating-sexuality.com. And you can find Bespoken Bones on all your favorite um, listening platforms for podcasts and on Instagram at Bespoken Bones. Did I get all of that right, Pavini? You- Yep, you got it, Alex. (laughs) Wonderful. So it is so, so great to have you on Gender Stories. We've been trying to do this for a little while, so I am really excited. And and as we were catching up, you were saying that you've had some exciting stuff going on in your life around gender marker change. Shall we start from there? Sure, yeah. On that? (laughs) Totally. So I um, currently, I live in San Francisco in California, and um, I just got my gender marker changed last week to NB, which is non-binary. And um, California is, uh, I think, in the vanguard of states that... um, has enabled people to change their gender markers, you know, on all of their doc- their all of their documents mm-hmm. to to non-binary or um, to a other than a binary gender marker, which is fantastic. And uh, the process was so easeful. Um, like I didn't even have to go to court um, because they want to protect trans people. So if you file a name and gender change, you don't have to go to court, which is, um, which is really special. And it felt really important to me um, to have my gender marker changed to non-binary, both as a, you know, a reflection of how I understand my gender identity, but also just like as an act of activism, I'm uh, in the process of moving this summer uh, across the country to North Carolina that does not have Mm. um, a gender neutral marker, gender marker. And so I'm just so curious of like, what's going to happen. You know, when I go to the DMV and I present them with my (laughs) 
California license. And I'm like, here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, in the DMV, like, I remember when I, I first moved to, um, to the States, they were like, I did not pick a gender marker at all because now they have a non-binary option here in Minnesota too, but they didn't at the time. And uh, they were like, you have to pick one and make sure you pick the right one. And I was like, I would love for you to tell me which one is the right one, in your opinion. But, so, <laughs> yes, the DMV is no joke. So I'm so glad the process was so useful for you. Yeah, it was I really wanted- lovely. So just like I want to yeah. acknowledge all the work of all of the people who like it's not just like magic poof it's just easy it's like a lot of people did a mm-hmm. lot of work to make that happen and I just have a lot of gratitude for all that that I just got to show up and be like woohoo I'd like to change my gender marker please and they were like great and how amazing that you didn't even have to go to court which is really a recognition of how traumatic and even dangerous it can be for trans and non-binary folks to have to show up in a legal system right what a what a beautiful kind of uh, change that California made in that regard. I know, totally. When my partner went through this, it was in 2011 or 2012, and um, they still had to go to court, right? And it was mm-hmm. traumatic. And yeah. So in the time between, you know, in the last seven years, it's it, there's really been a lot of change. That's amazing. So tell me a little bit more about what that meant for you. I really hear about this piece about also activism, you know, especially as you prepare to kind of move to a different state. But yes, what does, what does this mean to you do, going through this gender marker change? Why was it so important to you to do this before you moved? Yeah, well, it's interesting because at first it wasn't. And, um, you know, I identify as uh, genderqueer, and trans and um and at first like it was kind of like a transition at first I was like I'm just who I am and it's fine and everything is fine and I don't need to do anything you know mm-hmm. to to be in accordance with myself and be in alignment and and then there was this moment um where I had this you know you've, you've probably had these moments where just like uh this deep truth just strikes you and suddenly the world is different and you're like, Oh crap. Cause it was like, the moment was, <laughs> Oh, I have to have top surgery. And I was just like, Oh really? Like, really? I have to do that. Like I thought I was going to get out of this, you know, without having to have surgery. And that just wasn't the case. And um, it didn't make sense to me. Like why, you know, like I'm, I'm not trying to um, transition to anything other than me. And I'm not trying to like, um, be a particular gender identity. I'm like, why do I have to, you know, manipulate my body this way? It was just like, you just do. And I was like, all right. And so I just trusted and I followed and I listened to that. And um, and it was kind of the same thing with the gender marker where I was like, I don't need that. It's fine. Like, I know who I am. And um, over time, it got more and more uncomfortable. There was like a, there was a, um, having a name and a gender marker on my ID that um, wasn't representative of, of who I am and how I feel for a while. It was kind of awesome. Cause it was like, I felt like I had this um, other identity that I could do all of the logistical stuff under and like the mm. legal stuff. And then like, but my real self was over here hiding in plain sight, you know, like this yeah. is the real me. And then there's this other self that's like the legal me and ha ha ha, you can't see me. But over time that started to feel less um, congruous and like it, it, it started to feel more and more uncomfortable. Like when I would go to the doctor and they would use the other, the name that I was given at birth, it just started to feel like, Oh, like that doesn't actually feel like ha 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 anymore. It just feels mm. like, uh. and um, yeah. And so the, I'm, I'm starting a company um, and part of starting a company, this kind of winds into a lot of things that I think we're going to talk about today. Um, 
means like what came up for me was like, oh my gosh, like there are no, um, I don't have any role models for, I'm a fat person. I'm a queer person. I'm a trans person. Like I don't have any role models for CEOs, you know? And I cried and I spent a lot of time like, oh my God, like I can't do this because I, no one's done it before me. So I can't do it. And, um, you know, my partner is so sweet and spent such time consoling me with that and then like did all this research and like sent me all these CEOs that are like fat and genderqueer and trans or like whatever <laughs> and um, I was just like okay cool that's that, okay you've, you've crossed that excuse off the list um because now I have these role models and and then I was like and as in starting this company um like visibility is really important right like not my personal mm-hmm. visibility but like because I was in that position of not having role models and feeling like that grief of that, I was like, okay, actually, like I need to, I need to inhabit this more fully. So actually, I thought I didn't have to change my name and my gender marker, but to be um, in integrity and to um, be in alignment with my activism and, and like if I'm going to be the head of this company and I'm going to do this, like I need to do this in a way that um, that is that represents who I am and and the you know the kind of um leadership that i want to see in the world i need to step fully into that so then i decided like okay i'm going to change my name and gender marker and um yeah so that happened last week and it was super it was funny because i didn't realize how much i was carrying around it because when i got the final paperwork it was like there was this sense of like um relaxation that happened that i didn't even realize Mm -hmm. that i was carrying a contraction around yeah, I love what you said about, um, well, all of it. It's like so meaningful, right? And what I love is um, how, intrins- how intrinsically connected this is to how you are in the world and your activism, right? Yeah. That this is a way of honoring and being in integrity with all other aspects of your life, but also how you spoke to this very human need um, that we have, we know this because of our mirror neurons, right? We need to be able to see ourselves in other people. We need to feel like we're not uh, alone, right? That we can connect to other folks. And so what a gift that you are giving, um, you know, to those who are going to kind of walk this path after you to kind of this gift of visibility, this gift of leadership, as you said. It's, um, yeah, that's an incredible gift, I think, to uh, give others, you know, not just yourself in some ways. So thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about your activism. You do so much that I hardly know where to start from, right? I want to talk about your activism around um, fat bodies and fatness and pleasure and also your work and activism and healing work as a somatic sex therapist around sexuality and then the work with ancestors. But maybe um, a good place to start would be like uh, gender, given that we are talking about your gender marker change. Kind of what is the importance of gender in your life and in your work kind of overall and then we'll go more into like all the different bits but tell me a little bit more about that when i started to become aware that i was not cisgendered um like i didn't have the words for what i actually was you know because i i knew uh, you know, I was assigned female at birth. I knew I wasn't a guy. Uh, I didn't want to be a guy. Um, and I wasn't a girl. I wasn't a woman. And like, so what is that then? 
Mm. I mean, there wasn't um, there there wasn't the language. I I did um, kind of a few years into the process come across the word genderqueer, and I was like, oh, like yeah, there's there's another space here, right? A space of of non definition, of um, you know, that is more liminal. That is, um, there's just more. There's so much more movement here. Yeah, and like that was how it feels on the inside. You know, it feels on the inside like there's just this. Uh, like I'm actually sitting in my chair, moving my body in the way that it feels. It's just like this this fluctuating, undulating, moving center that's not fixed. And when I think about my gender identity, I mean, the things that come up are things like glitter, mm. you know, um, joy, uh, play, like that's my gender identity. Um, I have this big, thick, uh, silver chain, you know, like, uh, like a dude from the seventies might've worn mm -hmm. that I wear all the time. And I'm like, that's my gender identity. You know, like these, mm -hmm. I can see it in these things and, but it's, it's really this felt space of, um, movements inside of me. And mm -hmm. so, the way it informs my work is that spaciousness and that um, that pervasive sense of uh, I don't know how to talk about how to put into words this the the felt sense of capacity, but I think it's like spaciousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, to hold, to be with uh, things that are not definitive, things that are moving, things that refuse to be pinned down. Um, that like that that felt sense of that that's the um, that's the gift that I bring into the work of being able to be with clients and students who are um, transforming who are evolving who are changing who are growing who don't want to get to a fixed place and be like okay now I'm here like I you know I, I talk about erotic liberation all the time right mm. and I talk about it as a set of practices, not a state that you get to. Like you don't, like you're not like, cool, like I'm an erotic liberated dude, right? You're like, <laughs> I'm practicing erotic liberation. I'm practicing liberation. And I just happen to go through the door of Eros, right? Like, cause that's, that's what's um, most accessible to me in this body. But um, yeah, that sense of spaciousness is really what informs the work of like, uh, you can, you can have, um, you can have what you want. You can feel how you want, uh, it takes work um, and it takes support and it takes um, community support, but that there's, um, you know, those, what are those tools called uh, that you like, like a putty knife or things like if you had a window that was painted shut and you wanted to loosen the mm, paint, you could open yeah. the window. Like that's how my gender informs my work. It's like, like living that myself allows me to bring the tools of that but also just the like the sweet compassion for that to clients of being like oh yeah like here's how you set yourself free like I don't know how you set yourself free but here's how I set myself free and I'll be with you while you figure out how to set yourself free you know that's the um that's the sense of it oh I love it as you were talking I really had this felt sense of as you were saying expansiveness and and I love that you talked about liberation because there was a sense of um freedom and fluidity that gender is kind of a 
a process and something that can be evolving and fluid and doesn't have to be like fixed at any one point in time. So, oh, I love all of that. And and given that you were talking about your work with kind of clients and students around erotic liberation, um, tell me and the listeners more about the beautiful somatic sex therapy work that you do with people and what does even erotic liberation mean? Mm-hmm. I think there's so many ways um, to get free and you can really only get free in places where you're stuck and whether that's a, a personal stuckness or a cultural stuckness or um, a personal stuckness that comes out of a cultural stuckness, right? And so liberation work can um, can take many forms um, and you just find the flavor that's right for you. Yeah, and so this inroad through the body um, towards feeling free. Like, and do I feel free all the time? No, but do I make a practice of it, of um, refusing to accept that it's just all suffering, right? Like, fuck mm. that. Like, I get to have joy. I, you know, and, and I think in when we're living in othered bodies, marginalized bodies, um, the cultural narrative is you don't get to feel free. You don't get to um, experience joy. Like, it's like, um, I mean, the, what comes to mind is the prison industrial complex of, of telling certain bodies, here, you hold all of this, you hold all the contraction, you hold all the oppression, right? You hold this. I don't want to hold this, so you hold it. And we're going to put this on your body. It gets projected onto fat bodies. It gets projected onto melanated bodies. It gets projected onto trans and disabled bodies. You know, it's like, and so there's this way that, um, that, that like we have to figure out, um, you know, Th- through that veil, that miasma of that, what are we actually going to do with that? You know, are there parts that we can um, set ourselves free from? Are there parts that we can can loosen the stranglehold? Because, like you know, it's true. There's um, there are forces in this world that would prefer that other bodies don't exist, and that happens every single day. And and so, like, what is our internal resistance? Yeah. Um, absolutely I love it and -hmm. and so the work like with the body for me it just it feels like a revolution because it's like oh you told me that my body doesn't get to feel all these things you know doesn't get to be these things it has to be all these other things and I'm saying no (laughs) Mm. you know and so for me the um like that's the why through the body that's the inroad of the body and and the um and this commitment to um you know, I work with lots of folks with lots of really intense sexual trauma. I have a lot of sexual trauma myself. And, uh, and like, how do, like, because that, you know, trauma, with it, what it does is it locks you down, right? It, it makes the, the soma contract. And how do our bodies get to feel safe? How do our bodies get to relax? How do our bodies get to find um, playfulness, right? Because spontaneity is actually the antidote to that. And how do we get to um, step back or move back into um, the that birthright of spontaneity, of, of not knowingness, right? When we're so um, needing to know for our own safety so much of the time, yeah? And so the um, the work is really about that loosening the the finding the spontaneity again Mm. yeah and i love your work it's such it's so powerful and you bring it to people in so many different ways right you do 
one-on-one -on -one work, but you also do some online teaching and educating, and now you're kind of adding a second podcast. So I'm, I'm really, really excited to see more of your work out in the world because I think we do need this liberation, you know, this collective liberation around bodies and, and sexuality in particular. I would love for you to uh, tell me a little bit more about how do you feel kind of uh, gender interacts with your work when you are focusing on erotic liberation? So maybe how does gender show up in your work as a somatic sex therapist, if at all? Uh-huh. Um, one of the things that I'm asking my clients to examine and to interrogate is the sites of their shaping, the sites of their somatic shaping, right? So we all have this somatic shape that um, it's like the, the forces of our living have enacted. And, and so we shape around. So like, the, I think the best way to think about this, because I know it's a little bit vague is um, to think about if you've ever seen uh, along the, the Western um, North and North American coastline, you can see um, the trees that are shaped by the wind blowing off the ocean, mm, you know, and they're kind yes. of like, they're kind of trailing away, you know, kind of away from the ocean as, as the wind has shaped them and the, the forces of nature have shaped them. And so that happens to us too. It happens to us in our bodies. Yeah. And, but we don't, we don't notice it. We don't, um, we're not always aware. We just think, oh, this is just the way it is, right? Um, and so the th it's like if, if I were to say, Alex, um, when you were born, I said to you, these are the things that you get. You get to have, you were assigned female at birth, yeah? Yes. Okay. Um, you get to have pretty. And you get to have sweet. And you get to have nice. Um, you don't get to have uh, handsome, you don't get to have uh, cruel, and you don't get to have um, nasty or unpleasant. Mm. You don't get to have those things, you get to just like, get to have these things. And so you're just like, oh, okay, these are the things that I get. And so I'm shaped by these factors, right? I'm shaped by these things, and, and my, my life grows around these things. And when we start to investigate, what were the sites of those shaping? You know, what were the messages that you received um, about sex, about gender that caused you to grow in a particular way, just like those trees grow in a particular way because they're shaped by the wind? Like you have also grown because of this messaging and um, the acculturation that you've received. And so when we start to, to tease this apart of looking at what, what is actually my internal experience and what is the part of me that's shaped this way because of culture, right? It's the, that intersection of um, how has the gender that I've been practicing created the self that I am? And is that really true? And for some folks, it's super true. And for some folks, it's not, right? And so it's like, mm. you start to look at, like, in a, in just in the practical way, you start to look at your sexuality. And you start to think about, like, okay, how do I show up in a sexual encounter? Am I, um, am I more initiatory or am I more receptive? Yeah? And um, is that actually who I am or is that, is that my culture shaping me? You know? Like, how do I enact my desire? Um, 
where is the part of me that like is initiatory? Where is the part of me that is more aggressive during sex? You know, like how do I be a whole integrated being? Um, and how can I just start to really see the parts of me that just just been shaped? And not to say that it's bad or like I'm not mm-hmm. yeah. at all. Like, oh, that's just the shaping. And and so okay. Once I can start to see that, and once I can start to see how it shows up in my in my sexual encounters, then I can start to have more choice about it. You know, I have more freedom because, like, oh, like okay, like up until now, I've been the one who's always initiated. But like, there's this part of me inside that like really wants someone to initiate with me for example right and like what's it like to let that part show up and to give myself permission for that part to show up so i would say that that's the way we start to like tease apart those gender shapings and um how it's influencing sexuality and um like what other parts or what other parts of someone might be there and what desires they might be having they just aren't getting any airtime because it just doesn't there's not permission for it yeah Mm, I love it. You know, it feels like um, it's so much about individual, but also collective liberation, right? How can we give one another more space so that we can all be full size and right size just as we are, right? Because like you said, for some people, those shapings from culture might fit with their own individual kind of needs and desires, but that is not true for everyone. So kind of being able to be in relationship with those shapings kind of give space not just to ourselves as individual, but collectively can we then give more space to, to one another, which is, I think, why your work is so powerful. Because um, even when you are working one-on-one with people, you have that kind of liberatory collective lens, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about how gender, you know, is never just gender, right? <laughs> Um, there's gender and then there's kind of the way our bodies are racialized or the ways our body are seen are seen because of our disability or not having a disability because of being fat, for example. So I, I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit more about kind of our aspects of your somatic work, the um, of liberation. You know, I know you do fat activism, for example, but other aspects of kind of the work um, that you do that is about liberating um, liberating our collective understanding of, like you said, which bodies get to be legitimate um, in dominant culture and which bodies do not. I know that's a really big question. <laughs> let's, start with, let's start with desire. Yes. Yeah, because like this is where I see this showing up. Um, I did, uh, I've, I've run this experiment a few times, um, uh, this erotic experiment called Black Velvet, where uh, it's a completely um, sightless space that people are invited into. It's a completely um, dark space or black space. This came out of, just to pay homage to the lineage, it came out of um, dark rooms or, or black rooms, as they were called mm. in um, in gay bars, like where this back room in the bar where people could go and have anonymous sex. And um, I was so like curious about like, well, um, what what would that be like, you know, to, to deliberately create that that environment. And so I've run this experiment a few times of creating this completely dark space and inviting um, pe- like people to come in anonymously and it's a consent based space. Right. But um, it, the, the visual aspect is taken away. Mm. So how do you track for your desire 
when you don't know what the other person looks like right you don't know and especially like when you um so people you know people are kind of crawling around on the floor because it's too dark to stand and dangerous and so the invitation is to like move slowly move low um and when you first encounter someone like you might just like encounter their shin you know um and how do you know how you feel how do you know what your desire is and um like so much we rely on visual cues to let us know um what we feel right and if you're just touching someone's shin you really don't know is this a uh, a thin person or a fat person is this a white person or a black person is this um a person with uh an otherly abled body or um or not you know like you just don't know and so it's um I think that I, what I would say about that is like interrogating desire and the, um, it, this weaves into, I'm going to push pause there. I'm going to weave it into um, body acceptance for a sec because the, um, you know, that's the, the piece around body acceptance with other bodies is like what a lot of effort it is to, uh, to accept having a body, mm. right? It's such a life of effort of, um, and I think that that's probably true for for everybody, um, but I think it's especially true for people with bodies that are culturally othered. Um, it's such effort, and it's such constant effort, right? And like we're constantly like fighting and negotiating uh, with all the messaging that we're receiving to to find ourselves desirable or to find that we're worthy of love and, and attention, and um, and so. So we do that work. You know, a lot of us are pretty conscious about doing that work and, and we, we struggle with it. We therapy about it. We, you know, we do all these like self-love practices, da, da, da. Right? The thing that we don't look at is our attractions and our desires. And we accept those as um, innate. And we don't realize the way that all of um, the things like, like white supremacy, uh, fat phobia, ableism we don't see the impact of all that on our desire we just think oh we just we just like who we like we just are attracted to who we're attracted to it's invisible we can't see it and so and 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 the same with the um with with gender right it's like we can't Mm. see the way that the the shaping impacts our desire and yet the the impact of our attractions on our own self-acceptance is huge right so it's like if i only am attracted to white thin able-bodied young masculine fit um people with class privilege bodies right and i'm not that right you can see you start to see that connection of like oh there's this um this way that as much um body love work that i do because I haven't interrogated my attractions and I'm still in this, this um, paradox or this, um, sorry, this paradigm that, that my attractions are just my attractions, right? There's a way that that has impact. There's a way that it has impact on my own capacity to, um, to show up in connection with myself and to um, be available for connections with who I'm authentically, you know, who my body might be authentically connected to in the dark, right? If I removed all of that or as much as as possible. Yeah. Am I starting to get at it? Oh, yes. I love it. And I feel like it's almost like the other side of the coin of the 
some of the work that um, my friend Ergana, who was also interviewed for the podcast in season one, does around a visual diet, you know, and kind of what are the images that we're exposed to that make us feel like we only seen some bodies that are attractive and legitimate because yes. uh, she also does some kind of uh, body accept acceptance uh, kind of work. And I love that this is kind of the other side of this as well. If we do take this visual element away, then what are the possibilities that open up, right, for our erotic possibilities, for our desire? Um, yeah, absolutely. I I love it. Yeah. Well, let me just let me give you the follow up. So that a part of yes. the experiment was <laughs> that people had to um to to be able to participate in the experiment. People agreed that they would write within twenty four hours um of their experience yeah and so they wrote an email and they to me and and then i um collated all of them took out all of the identifying information and mailed them mm -hmm. out to participated and like almost without fail people were like i didn't know what to do like there weren't any rules and so i made some up um <laughs> i i couldn't feel my desire like i felt like i really wanted to and i couldn't access it you know because i couldn't see and i didn't know and it's just like whoa right that um that that like the space that you would think like oh if we just take all of this away if we just take access to all of this information away it'll be like oh we'll just be able to connect with our natural mm -hmm. innate desires like it was it wasn't like that and and maybe you know if we did it again and again and again and there was just many practice opportunities maybe that would start to emerge but it you know just initially was very disconcerting to many people well, that, that makes sense to me, right? From a somatic perspective, that's disorienting because in some ways you're kind of taking away some of this kind of cultural and visual kind of clues and anchors, you know, and so, yes, that's, that disorientation makes sense. And I do, I mean, I do believe actually that if the experiment was kind of then repeated um, and that practice right would be different and and i love that you call it a practice right that in some ways it needs to be intentional there needs to be work to be in a critical relationship with this shapings that we um the way we've been shaped right, right. by yeah. culture and society and those around us absolutely mm. so what what beautiful work and um uh, and and I love that you're bringing this work to people in lots of different ways, right? Groups, individuals, online. Um, tell, tell me a little bit more why it is important for you to use kind of different channels to do this work of erotic liberation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, access, mm. clearly. Right, like making the work accessible in different formats because people learn in different ways. Um, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm really pretty hedonistic, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that about you. I just like following like what feels good to me, and like you know, recently I've been um, really enjoying teaching online like so much, uh, and like. You know, I call it the school of no pants because like you don't have to wear pants and um, and it's just the like you know I live in a city and it's overwhelming and there's like traffic and parking and in millions of bodies and it's like a lot for people's nervous systems you know and it's a lot to um to like go to a thing and being able to just 
sit at your computer and have access to um, really radical, transformative dialogue and process and activities uh, is great. And, you know, I, I have clients and students from all over the world, um, you know, and it, it's, of course, it's like some people who are, you know, who really don't have access, but I think there's also this thing about like um, safety and like creating containers that feel safe. And um, so online is, you know, for some people they can just, they can be there. They don't even have to have their, their audio or their video on, they can still feel like they're participating, especially for folks with like, you know, significant relational trauma. Like it can be a really sweet um, way to still be doing the work and to feel safe at the same time, right? They don't have to like go get naked somewhere and like masturbate with a group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so confronting. They can just like, you know. Um, so yeah, I feel like that that is, uh, and then kind of like the in-person work, um, I feel like it's just it's just connective and and sweet and um, powerful and I get paid better for it, um, which is important to be able to continue this work. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, we have yeah. to survive in this capitalist world. But yeah. I love that your compass is kind of you know access and pleasure, right? The, this very embodied way of kind of leaving your path as also being in integrity is where am I finding pleasure in what I do and now I do the work and now I provide access to the work for people, right? And, uh, and I love that about you. And, and one of the places that kind of your, um, kind of your pleasure or your interest brought you to was also brought you to creating the beautiful podcast that we talked about earlier, kind of Bespoken Bones. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about Bespoken Bones, which is a podcast really focusing on ancestors and un- ancestral practices. And, uh, and then I've got more questions to ask you about it, but let's start from there. Just kind of how did the podcast come about and uh, what's your pleasure in doing that, this pod- podcast and how does it connect with your other work around erotic liberation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually came out of the work on erotic liberation. I mean, I was just um, seeing so many folks showing up in my practice who had transgenerational trauma. I didn't even know what to call it. I just knew mm-hmm. that like there were things that we couldn't like even though we were working somatically and even though there was so much transformative work happening, there was just things we couldn't get at. And um and I didn't have the language for it. And and then I started to if it's like, oh, like I think this might be some ancestral stuff. And like, are there technologies to work with this? You know, how do how do I have like I'm I'm, you know, willing to do whatever by whatever means necessary to get people to <laughs> they want right because mm-hmm. I was like okay like let's go down the ancestor path and um you know I'm from Cleveland Ohio and grew up in the 80s in the punk scene there and sometimes I'm like leading ancestor ritual and I'm like in California I'm banging on this drum and I'm like oh my god really like how how did I get here like <laughs> you're what? one of those people now <laughs> I gotta have my kale chips and my coconut water and my vegan ice it's gonna be great and um yeah exactly I have a lot of judgment about it but <laughs> But it like, you know, it, 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 I did find some things that worked and um, it led to me being curious about more things that worked, like how can relationships with ancestors be a source of support as, um, as people recover from sexual trauma and develop sexual wellness? Yeah? Mm-hmm. And so that was, the, um, that was the dissertation question I asked. And so I started interviewing all these people about this question of like, how do your relationships with your ancestors 
um, how has that helped you heal? How has that helped you become a sexually well or sexually free being, you know? And uh, so I started doing all these interviews and like, it was amazing the information that I was getting. It's like, oh my God, there's actually a connection here. I mean, I figured that there was, but then like it actually was there and I was finding all these people who were talking about it and like, um, like people who I really had held in very high regard and high esteem, like elders in our communities and um, teachers and leaders and, and, um, and so, you know, as I was doing that interview process, I got better and better at doing interviews. And I was just, I felt so, um, like I, you know, I got to interview people like Gina Ogden and Keith Hennessy and, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Jenny Wade. And like, I was, I felt like I had this opportunity to sit at their feet and listen. Um, oh. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, and and this shouldn't just be, like I feel very blessed, but it shouldn't just be for me. Other people should get to have access to the this amazing content. Um, and then my dissertation community was like, "Yeah, you need to stop doing the interviews. You need to start writing this dissertation." And so um, they kind of jokingly suggested that I you could just do a podcast if you want to keep doing this. And so I did. And, <laughs> um, and yeah, and the um, it is a deep joy because it feels so luxurious to get to have somebody all to yourself for an hour and ask them all the nosy personal questions that you want to know the answers to right like i'm i'm in service to my listeners but i'm also like following my own intuition and like my own curiosity and um it just feels so tremendous of the the generosity when people come on the show. And I mean, you know, you know, they just, they're just like willing to just come and share with you. And, um, and I think there's also this, the, the, another sexy part for me is getting to lift up people's work, you know, like people who, um, who might not have access to a big platform or whose like work is kind of like, they don't even care about that. Um, like that's just not their jam. They're just like doing their thing. Uh, you know, and they're doing it so well and so beautifully. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I want everybody to know about you and your work because like those are, it's important, you know, just to know that there's people in the world who are awesome and um, who relish what they do. And and um, so like, that's another piece of it that's really sexy to me. I love it. And I love your podcast so much. I think there is so much wisdom there. I, absolutely. I love what you talked about. I love that you mentioned Gina as well and that you got to interview her before she died because I, I love Gina and she was a really beloved colleague who um, did a special issue um, of the journal I used to edit. So I also love seeing those tendrils of connection with kind of people who have become recent ancestors and yes. and the blessings that brought to this this work of healing um sexuality and something that you do on your podcast which i really uh, love is you talk about gender blessed ancestors and i would love for you to say a little bit more about um how this work with ancestors kind of intersects with gender what do ancestors have to do with gender and what about the term gender blessed ancestor which i love i would love for you to talk more yeah. about that yeah the um I, well, I think this idea that um 
that we're not alone, that there is nothing new under the sun, right? Mm-hmm. That any experience that you're having in a human form, there has been another human that has had that experience, right? Like we, we feel so isolated and so alone. And uh, we just forget that there's this like completely rich archive of wisdom of, because like, this, everything that's happened has already happened, right? Like 10,000 times, 1 million times. It's, um, and so I think especially for, for folks who are trans or who are um, GNC or NB, you know, whatever the, the label that you use is, um, there can be this real sense of alienation in family lines of, um, especially if you don't have any queer relatives or trans relatives or, you know, because mm-hmm. often those stories are so obfuscated or hidden um, and it, they don't show up in genealogy, right, often. Um, and so you can just feel like, oh my God, I'm the freak show in my family. You know, I'm the black sheep. I'm the the gender weirdo. I'm the, you know, and like often families aren't like, you know, super, um, oh no, it's good. You're all good because great uncle so-and-so also, you know, it's not like that, right? People have, have lots of experiences of feeling really alienated in their families. And so tapping into the ancestral knowing of oh wait a minute there were so many people like me in my family line like I might not know them by name I might not know their stories I might not have pictures of them Um, they might be way back but like there were people like me I am not an aberration right Um, that I am embodying something that came from somewhere you know and so I started thinking about um like all that we receive, even from our our living ancestors, from our elders, you know, from our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents, like we can track some of that stuff, right? We can say, oh, uh, you know, I can really track the shame that my mom my mom has about sex because she never talks about it. So we can track that. So like we can also track the blessings, mm-hmm. right? And um, so this was some of the stuff that I was doing in my dissertation research was like really starting to track the blessings that people can can identify of having um, inherited from their ancestors. Um, And that idea that this stuff came from somewhere, it's a blessing, right? Like being gender blessed, uh, that this is not something that's wrong. It's not something that just kind of like, I'm a fuck up. It's like, oh, this is a, this is a gift that has been passed down this bloodline and like look at me it landed in me who like yay me and mm-hmm. um how can i how can i honor it as a gift rather than a burden right especially when culture is telling me it's a burden all the time so um yeah and then the 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 term gender blessed um it came out of that and and this um you know I, I think I've heard you say very recently that we're all gender blessed. And I kind of like that. <laughs> like, yeah, we're all gender blessed. That's right. Just like, and we're all bisexual and like <laughs> <laughs> creating the world that I want, right. Of like when people are really do have that access to that spaciousness and that fluidity. And um, yeah. And I, I, I feel like there's a way to, by when we name things, um, we it's like we spin them we uh we do create the world that we want through the language that we use right and so i can say gender non-conforming and that's legit right but then like it still casts me in this outsider role right mm-hmm. uh, non-conforming non-conforming to what fucking thing you know like 
when I say gender blessed, it's, um, it's, it feels more like an opportunity. It feels more open to me. I like the words that you use gender expansive too, of like, um, gender creative. I've heard, you know, Mm -hmm. these words that just open, um, rather than limit. Mm. And, and I love that that openness then allows our bodies, both individual and collective to expand, right? Because like you said, trauma kind of wants us to contract. So yeah. kind of feeling that gender can be this creative, expansive blessing, it does allow us to expand, right? Individually and collectively. Mm. Such, such good work. And one of the things that you do on the podcast with your guests and also um, before you interview your guests, as I now know, is um, you offer a prayer um, to ancestors. And I was wondering if you would like to do that or if you would like to share why you pray on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, I think I want to talk about why I pray. Great. Yeah. Um, Speech is a place where uh, body and spirit come together, right? Because it's, um, it's coming up out of the body, out of the mind, out of the body. And it's, it uses air, right? Mm. Um, And there's this transition from in the body have the idea, have the thought, have the words to out of the body, out in the world, out on the sound waves, right? And so, um, you know, I think about prayer as one way to break silence. Um, it's often, you know, talking to dead people is can be a taboo, right? And so when I'm praying to my ancestors out loud, I am, I'm breaking a taboo, I'm breaking silence, I'm actively acknowledging the... Um, their existence and that my direct uh, connection to them. And it's a, it's an offering of sound and word and poetry and voice and breath. And, um, and I feel like there's lots of ways to pray. Uh, you know, we can pray with our bodies. We can pray with our dance. We can pray when we make music or art, like that, that prayer is a, is a, a generative process. And, you know, for me, living a prayerful life means just like being in regular um, relationship with spirit, regular acknowledgement of um, the unseen world and getting to pray uh, before podcast, um, before podcast interviews is a way of acknowledging that it's not me. It's like a, it's a way to, quiet I guess the ego maybe a little bit of of just saying like I am an instrument of this goodness I'm an instrument of this healing and like there's also like this um I don't know how to put it exactly but it's like a have my back quality about it like Mm. if if I pray if I create a prayer container around something um one of my uh favorite prayers is actually a song which is um everything is as it should be as it is and ever was, all that needs to show, all that needs to shall come to be, um, find peace and love and harming none. And there's more to that, but um, the everything is as it should be. Peace. When I pray and I say, like, let the let this be the goodness. Let this be the corrective. Let this be the medicine. You know, guide me with your wisdom. Guide me with your your blessings. Um, I don't I don't feel such a sense of like need to control. Uh, and there's also a sense of collaboration of like, I'm working with the spirit world 
um, I'm, I'm acknowledging and working with and allowing them to have voice and have presence and like they can see things you know, it's my belief that the ancestors can see things from their position um, that I can't see, that they have a bigger sense of, of what's needed. And um, yeah, so prayer is an act of trust uh, that of, of that. And it's an acknowledgement of my limited vision. And it's a way of like also not having to feel so responsible um, mm. for everything because it's like I'm I'm in collaboration and, and and it's just like being part of any team, right? It's like, oh, there's shared responsibility here. Mm. Right. And so if something happens on um during an interview um that's surprising or um that I, you know, that I feel like is, oh, was that a fumble or was that a misstep? There's a way that I can step back and be like, oh, but it's in a prayer container. And like, that's there for a reason. And that, and that it's an important thing. And often I, um, it's funny. Cause like I've had those moments where that happens and I'm like, oh God, like, oh, I said that thing. Like I'm thinking of a, um, an episode that I did uh, with uh, Naomi Ortiz and um, mm-hmm. she's a disability activist and uh, really beautiful human. And like, I just felt like I was stumbling so hard. Like I didn't feel like fluent and I didn't feel good with like my language around disability justice. And I was like, <laughs> you know, and just was, you know, all over the place with it. And, and she was gracious and carried the interview so well. And, um, and afterwards I was like, yeah, but it's in the prayer container. You know, it's in the prayer container and, and being human and um, allowing that kind of vulnerability. Like, I'm in process. Like, I need to learn more about this. This I, I think I even said that, you know, on the interview. Like, it's clear to me that I need to learn more about this. Like, it just, the prayer container was the thing that made it okay. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that those are kind of the main reasons why I pray. Ah, thank you for sharing those reasons. And I love Naomi. Um, I also interviewed her for Gender Stories to talk about self-care and gender and disability because she had this um, a piece in this beautiful anthology on um, disability. And um, yeah, Naomi is just great. But I love this idea of um, prayer as a container. And talking about containers, I am loving having you in this container of my podcast and I'm, I also realized that I could talk with you for hours, um, but I wanna be respectful and, and maybe we'll have a part two um, in the future. So before we kind of wrap up and remind all of our um, listeners kind of how they get uh, to, how they can get in touch with you, how they can find out more about your work, is there anything I have not asked you about that you are hoping to talk about on my podcast? I don't know. I'm just listening to um, one of my favorite RuPaul quotes, which is, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to get it exactly right, but it's like, when you're, when you're born, you're naked and the rest is just drag. <laughs> mm, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love how that quote in some ways for me kind of links back to what you were saying at the beginning of the interview about your gender and that fluidity and expansiveness, right? And, and my gender is glitter and my gender is just like chain that I wear, you know. I love it. Yes, it's uh, gender. So fascinating, right? <laughs>
<laughs> oh, Pavini, thank you so much. So, dear listener, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Gender Stories. If you want to find out more about Pavini Moray, Dr. Pavini Moray's work, please check out Pez's website at www.emancipating-sexuality.com emancipating-sexuality.com and you can find uh, Bespoken Bones podcast on all your favorite podcast listening platforms. Please look out for the Well Pleasure podcast in September 2019 on Instagram. You can follow at Bespoken Bones and um, I believe that people can get in touch with you if, uh, if they're interested in working with you through the Emancipating Sexuality website. And is there any other thing that you would like the listeners to be aware of in terms of how they can get in touch with you or find out more about your work or access your work? No, but like I, I really hope that I've said something that has like um, that has lit something up either in any way, any feelings. And I'm just happy to, I'm always happy to hear how things land. Mm. Yes, I would love for you, dear listeners, to write uh, to us at genderstoriespodcast at gmail.com. That's genderstoriespodcast at gmail.com. I always love to hear what you think about the podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at genderstories, and you can also get in touch uh, with me through kind of those means. And um, I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash genderstories, and Pavini also has a Patreon for Pez podcast, Bespoken Bone. So if you want to support both of our podcasts, you can do that. Um, and uh, as you know, if you're just interested in finding out more about gender in general, please check out the books that Mac John Barker and I about how to understand your gender and the more recent book, Life Isn't Binary. And uh, I really welcome you to so also check out Pavini's work and support um, the, pot, the Patreon for the Bespoken Bones podcast. So thank you, Pavini. It's been so wonderful to have you with us. And I hope that our listeners got just um, the drop of wisdom, the drop of medicine that maybe they needed in this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thank you.